is Daniel, is a letter in Daniel Deronda? It's a letter in Daniel Deronda. Oh, I see. That has almost zero narrative function and is by an extremely minor character and goes on for pages and pages and pages. Among Deronda's letters the next morning was one from Hans Meyrick. Among Deronda's letters the next morning was one from Hans Meyrick, a four quatro pages in small, beautiful handwriting, which ran the Meyrick. My dear Deronda, in return for your sketch of Italian movements and your view of the world's affairs generally, I may say that here at home the most judicious opinion going as to the effects of present causes is that time will show. I have a knack of hoping, which is as good as a state in reversion, which is as good as from the temptation of turning it into certainty, which may spoil So, I stay with my hope among the orchard blossoms. Your devoted Hans Mayrick. Last November, I read Daniel Deronda, George Eliot's, the British author's, enormous final novel. Deep in the book's second half, there is a letter by a very minor character and his love for another pretty minor character. The letter is sent to the protagonist, and it goes on for, like, four four or five pages. The letter does not serve a purpose in the plot, but when I first read the letter, I was just overtaken by the conviction that it was one of the smartest things I had probably ever read. The intensity of its wording, its beauty, its playfulness and self-deprecation, its perfect understanding of the nature of storytelling are all incredibly rich. The character who wrote it is Hans Mayrick. Here is my good friend Kara reading the opening of the letter. My dear Deronda, in return for your sketch of Italian movements and your view of the world's affairs generally, I may say that here at home the most judicious opinion going as to the effects of present causes is that time will show. As to the present causes of past effects, it is now seen that the late swindling telegrams account for the last year's cattle plague, which is a refutation of philosophy falsely so-called, and justifies the compensation to the farmers. In the letter, Hans Mayrick presents a sort of satire. Notice how he says that people commonly accept a certain chronology in life. He's saying that cause leads to effect. Time will show. This is how we sort of make and tell stories. But when I read an essay by the scholar Cynthia Chase, she pointed out that Hans is playing with us and saying that the world doesn't always unfold in this normal, correct order. He talks about a government scandal involving a sort of cattle plague and a bunch of telegrams. The late swindling telegrams. Don't worry over specifics. He is super confusing here. But he basically says that the events, the current events, show... The present causes of past effects. But what? Time is working backwards. How can a cause come after an effect, as Hans says? He is sort of playing and saying that life can happen out of order, or stories aren't always so clear. I read much of Daniel Deronda over Thanksgiving break while I was home, and often read aloud to my grandmother, who was born in the UK and has a deep fondness for British literature. Because the letter had struck me, I called my grand this January to see if she remembered me reading it to her. 
Hi. Hi, Lobby. Hi, Lobby. It's good to see you. It's good to talk to you. <laughs> How have you been doing today? Uh, things are fine. Yeah. What's the weather like? What are you up to? Um, well, today My mom was I, visiting in the apartment and helped I set up the call. My grandmother has had Alzheimer's for eight years. And when I asked Grant how she was, she said she had a young man over. She was speaking of my mother. Often she wanders the halls of her care facility in the middle of the night, having awoken and gone out the front door in search of the bathroom. Ah, okay. I do, I do remember, and of course I had heard of the book before, and some friend of mine was reading it. Yeah. Um, Reflecting on reading to my grandmother and the way in which Hans Mayrick questions the easy chronology which we expect from life. I was thinking of Grant's Alzheimer's. At the end of her life, she is sort of going back to a time before memory, losing the milestones and roadblocks which stapled her life together into a sensible narrative. I asked my mother about Grant's relationship with time and memory. Yeah. I totally see it completely jumbled with mom. I mean, she... She just moves seamlessly between time and even space sometimes. Seamless movement between time and space. That is how my mother describes it to me. In taking my grandmother's memory, Alzheimer's has taken away much of her agency and some of her command of her identity. My grand still knows who she is and what she values, but she is always lost as all of us would be, without the connecting strand between our memories, our dreams, and our actions. Alzheimer's is a disease which is said to rob loved ones of the beloved. It takes the victim away while preserving their physical presence. I wanted to read a portion of the letter to Gran, one of my favorite portions. I have a knack of hoping, which is as good as an estate in reversion, if one can keep from the temptation of turning it into certainty, which may spoil all. from the temptation of turning it into certainty, which may spoil all. My hope wanders among the orchard blossoms, feels the warm snow falling on it through the sunshine, and is in doubt of nothing, but catching sight of certainty in the distance, sees an ugly, yawnous-faced deity with a dubious wink on the hither side of him and turns quickly away. But you, with your supreme reasonableness and self-nullification and preparation for the worst, you know nothing about the drama of hope, that immortal, delicious maiden, forever courted, forever propitious, whom fools have called deceitful, as if it were hope that carried the cup of disappointment, whereas it is her deadly enemy certainty, whom she only escapes by transformation. You observe my new vein of allegory? Seriously, however, I must be permitted to allege that truth will prevail, that prejudice will melt before it, that diversity, accompanied by merit, will make itself felt as fascination, and that no virtuous aspiration will be frustrated. All which, if I mistake not, are doctrines of the schools, and all imply that the Jewess I prefer will prefer me." Do you have anything that you think you hope, Grant, for yourself or for your family or for us or for me? Oh, my goodness. Well, I certainly do. And I have um, 
hope for. Um, I don't know how I'd put it, but um, how I, I'd, I'd have all kinds of hope for for you and for, my, for all, all my kids. And um, but they're not, you know, they're not super specific. Yeah. Um, Feel I'm coming short of you. No, mind. no, no, not at all. This has just been perfect. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear your voice. Yes, it, it is nice to be talking. Yeah. yeah. I like to think that my grandmother has uh, a hope in the same way that Hans has a hope. But uh, what exactly does this mean? What can be made of this issue of hope? And why does Hans private above, prize it above certainty? I wanted to know more, so I went to the only expert that I could think of. And we're rolling. We're rolling. I'll let you introduce yourself. My name is Hope. <laughs> um, hope Wiley. I feel like I've thought about hope maybe more than the average person. I remember like when I was really little, like asking my mom like what the word meant, like what my name meant, and she always said it was an adjective, which it isn't. <laughs> she goes, oh, oh, your name's an er, like you're an adjective, your name's an adjective. And I remember being in kindergarten and someone telling me it was a noun, and I was like, no, it's not. Mayrick ends the letter saying, so I stay with my hope among the orchard blossoms. You're devoted. In the letter, hope becomes... Uh, an unspecified place, a sort of adjective, just like Hope's mother said, a non-specific way of being. The letter's discussion of Hope thus opens up a way of wanting, a way of desiring, which is non-specific, everlasting, perfect. Hope is divorced from fulfillment. It does not change with time. It's beautiful. When I told Hope that Mayrick does not end up with Mira, she said this made it all even better. This, the state in and of itself is what's beautiful. His, his love for her, his hope for her is pure, is a virtuous aspiration. I really like the idea of searching for something you'll never get or like searching for something that it's e impossible for you to ever achieve. I think it's like the most beautiful thing to devote your time to, the most noble of pursuits. After our chat, Hope pointed me to a lecture by the oral historian Amy Tooth Murphy on the subject of chrononormativity. This concept questions the way in which we turn lives into perfect narratives as they follow through a set of milestones, like marriage, kids, retirement, um, so graduation. It is currently LGBT History Month, and so what better way to celebrate than to 
listen to me talk about queer oral history. Um, Amy Murphy was talking about queer lives and the challenge that traditional chronology posed to non-traditional relationships. What I want to look at today is how our fixation with chronology can inhibit the telling of queer narratives. And more specifically, I want to employ Elizabeth Freeman's concept of chrononormativity. She specifically draws on the lives of lesbian women who were married for years to a man, raised children, and came out late in life. Lesbian women who have lived significant chunks of their lives in heterosexual marriages or relationships. She asked, how can such a life be read in a linear fashion? She explains that when a lesbian woman lived half of her life in a straight relationship, all the milestones which make up a sensible chronology, a good storyline, having kids, getting married, falsely represent that woman's identity. Their life equations were faulty. How can A plus B plus C equal me if me is a lesbian, but the other side of the equation is a 20-year marriage and two kids? I'm struck by the perfect coincidence. My grand married my grandfather in the UK and emigrated with him to the United States where she had two kids. Uh, once the kids, my, my mom and my aunt, were grown, my grandfather had an affair and my grandmother, um, this was past the age of 50, left him for a woman, Katie. Grand lived exactly the sort of lesbian life which Amy Murphy presents as disruptive, as defiant of normal chronology. It seems my grandmother's life chronology was actually disrupted long before she even had Alzheimer's. It is disobedient of cause and effect, of desire and gratification, all those systems which Hans Mayrick satirizes. Grant was a therapist and ran a support group for Alzheimer's patients and their caretakers. And this is where she met her partner, Katie. At the time, Katie was caring for her own mother, who had the disease and started attending grand sessions. Decades later, decades later, Katie is again caretaking for an Alzheimer's patient. This time around, it's not her mother, but it's Gran. Lately, my grandmother has been confusing Katie with my grandfather, Peter. She has taken her two significant others from her life and kind of made them one. If I visit Gran at her apartment, and Katie has been there earlier in the day, Gran will say, a Peter stopped by, or my husband called, or he brought me a bottle of wine and a bar of chocolate if you would like some. I leave it to him to settle our basis, never yet having seen a basis which is not a world-supporting elephant more or less powerful and expensive to keep. My means will not allow me to keep a private elephant. I go into mystery instead, as cheaper and more lasting, a sort of gas which is likely to be continually supplied by the decomposition of the elephants. And if I like the look of an opinion, I treat it civilly, without suspicious inquiries. I love this part of the letter, too. Hans makes reference to a Hindu cosmological myth that the world is supported by an elephant. He says this explanation for the world's basis makes as much sense to him as any other framework or explanation, whether it be religious or philosophical or something else. Han says that instead of subscribing to one of these bases, he will go into mystery instead. And he even says he gets by on the gases given off by the decomposing of the world-supporting elephants. 
The basis of the world is released into air. Hans Mayrick becomes a character who needs so little, who needs no chronology, who needs no ambition, who needs no basis to know himself. He can exist instead in the orchard blossom of hope. I think sometimes that my gran, lost as she is, may be there in that orchard too, and I am happy at that thought. There have been times in my life where I felt that the world had a basis. I grew up with a really strong connection to nature, and I did believe that the natural world would sort of exist forever and deliver me into some sort of cosmological infinity. I no longer feel this so strongly, and I'm not sure that the natural world has the resilience of a cosmological or an infinite being. I might, I think I might recapture that day, that feeling someday, but for now I live in some form of uncertainty. What I thought was an ultimate basis, an elephant, appears to have been more uncertain or given to change than I had originally thought. Today, even the natural world is sort of in flux. There's Hans and the knack of hoping and the gift of hoping. And there's my gran and someday me too. Alzheimer's is a genetic condition. It follows down the blood. And like my grandmother, like women in Amy Murphy's histories, I'm gay. What does this all mean for my own chronology, for my own position between memory and future? I am not sure. I have been wondering recently how to live in the uncertainty that I feel, and I have not known. But in this letter, and in reading this letter to my gran, time, desire, gratification, they all give way into gas, into decomposition. And I'm thinking now of the pleasures of that airy mystery, what Hans calls that cheap, good way of life. And I am thinking also, always, of that gift for hope. I'll let you know how it goes. Are you gonna do some more? Some more of what? Of the um, uh, the Daniel Taronda. Some more reading. Yeah. Um. 
Probably not over the phone, but I can come see you maybe in a few weeks and read you to you then. Oh, I'd like that. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. Okay, my love. Bye. I love you and you look great. <laughs> Thank you. I love you and you look great. <laughs> okay, my darling. Bye.